For those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott, one of the members of the pastoral team. And if you are a guest with us, we've been uh, going through a series in the book of Genesis for a while now. And so we are obviously in Genesis chapter 22 today. Uh, before we, we jump into the text, I just want to ask you a question. How many of you like tests? Raise your hand. Yeah, not, not many of you. Uh, some of you probably hearing the word test and you're immediately getting some PTSD, like, ah! I remember when I was a, when I was a student, um, I was in Mrs. Sonier's class and uh, there was this test that was about to be taken and I sat down with my stu- uh, fellow students and I was just so nervous. I, was, I just wanted to pass. I wanted to do well. And that was in kindergarten. Uh, <laughs> And it just continues, right? You're a student. You have to continue to take these tests. And then you go on to college. You take more tests. And then you want to be a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse or fill in the blank, an accountant, any number of different types of jobs. And what do you have to do? You have to pass a test. Um, There's intense prep. There's nerves. There's anxiety. There's this fear of failure. There's this pressure to succeed. I mean, tests are intense, I remember Julia and I, we were watching a documentary uh, on a test. It was called SOM. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it follows the attempts of four candidates to pass a test that only 269 people in the world had ever passed. Um, it's, the, it's the test to become a master sommelier or a wine steward. And if you're not familiar with this test, there's actually three parts to it. And so the first part is the theory test, where, you're, where the person's knowledge and understanding of the, the world of wine are tested. And so you've got this history of winemaking, you've got wine trading and wine selling, you have to know all the business aspects to it. It's this massive theory test. Um, you have 35 minutes to complete 45 multiple choice, short answers, simple math, and matching questions. And if you pass that part of the test, then there's the second part of the test, and this is called the service test, where you actually have to go to a restaurant sort of environment, and before you are these judges that are sitting at the table, and you have to open up still or sparkling wines, you have to recommend cocktails or spirits, then you have to, depending upon what what food is presented for you, you have to pair wine with the food. And of course, you just have to show hospitality and be a good restaurant sommelier. So if you pass that part of the test, then the last part of the test, this is crazy. This we were like, what? Okay, so you walk into a room, and there's a table, and there's six glasses of wine, three white and three red. And you, in 30 minutes, have to taste those wines, and without any additional help, you have to write down everything about that wine what it tastes, what it, what it smells like. Then you have to talk about where that wine was produced, what region of the world. And then on top of that, you have to write down which winery it was produced at. And then on top of that, you have to label the year that it was produced. No wonder no one can pass this test. And so the, the, the documentary follows the last three weeks preparing for this test, and everybody's just freaking out. You know, there's flashcards going left and right. There's, there's uh, you know, just passing the, the a- aspect of just serving one another. And then on top of that, they have this, like, it's kind of disgusting, but there's a spit can they would spit the wine in. So they'd, they'd try it and swish it around. They'd try to figure out what it was, and they would spit it out. And they would just do it over and over and over and over again to prepare for this test. And so we were watching this, and we're like, this is just crazy. So you've got 
student tests. You've got job tests. But if you and I are honest, we know that the hardest test of all is life tests, right? I mean, school or job tests, those test knowledge and skills. But life tests, it tests your heart. They test your faith. What are you trusting in? What are you relying upon? And that's what we find here in Genesis chapter 22. This is the ultimate life test. And we've been following the life of Abraham for a while now. Um, and there's been a lot of tests along the way from him. Some of them he's, he's passed with flying colors, like A plus. And then others of them, you're like, what? You know, big red letters, F minus, like completely bombs them. But what I love about us walking through the life of Abraham is I can totally identify with him. Can you? I mean, I, I read the Psalms, and you've got like the first verse of the Psalm, Oh God, I praise you. And then in the second verse of the Psalm, Where are you, God? That's us a lot of times. The ups and the downs of faith. We, 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 we struggle to trust in the Lord. But there's one constant throughout And it's not our faith. It's the faithfulness of God. And so we just, we love the fact that in this story, we are going to find that even as Abraham passes the test, we're going to even see a greater aspect of the fact that God is faithful to Abraham. He doesn't give up on Abraham. And he doesn't give up on us. And as we grow and pass more and more tests, we begin to get closer and closer to the Lord. We begin to trust in him more fully and more deeply. We begin to see him for all that he is. But in this particular test that we're going to look at today, I mean, you've got Adam and Eve in the garden. You've got Jesus in the garden. And then I think right alongside of that, you've got Abraham on the mountain. Hardest test found in all of scripture. I mean, it's, it's like, it's riveting it's excruciating. It's, it's just infuriating. It's exhausting. It's overwhelming. And this story is glorious. It's what the Hebrew scriptures call the binding of Isaac. And we'll see that this test just doesn't require binding Isaac. It really tests whether Abraham's heart is bound to the heart of God. And so today's sermon is entitled, The Testing of Abraham. The Testing of Abraham. We're going to walk through three movements in this story, and each one is sort of a a back and forth a little bit between God and Abraham. And as we're going to walk through this story, my hope is that we will also be able to see our own hearts engaging with the heart of God. That we put ourselves into this story and be able to find that God indeed is faithful that he indeed is full of steadfast love for his people. So let me pray for us and ask that God would do that in our hearts. God, we come to you, we come to you with hearts that want to know you, that want to understand you, that want to relate to you, that also, if we're honest, have a tendency to move away from you. And we want to see this morning that, that as you use tests, it would, it would draw us back to you. 
and that we would find that you are faithful. Oh God, whatever test we might be going through right now, whatever test you might have in front of us, would we be reminded of this test? And may it strengthen our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So movement number one, God tests. Verses 1 through 10, we're going to just kind of walk through this story pretty slowly, starting with verses 1 and 2. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God has made some amazing promises to Abraham, promise of a land, promise of a people, promise of an inheritance, and ultimately a son who would bring about great blessing, blessing to the world. And each time God restates these promises, in fact, five times before this passage, he gives a little bit more detail. And last time where we left off in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham must let go of Ishmael because he's not the son of promise. Now, he's going to become a great nation, but not the nation that God has promised to Isaac. And so fast forward roughly 15 or so years, something like that. God calls out to Abraham, after these things, verse 1, after these things, Abraham's been hanging out with Isaac. He's been spending time with him. He's been just enjoying life as a family. After these things, God calls out, Abraham, Abraham. And I'm sure Abraham snapped to it. Here I am, ready to respond. What do you want, God? What do you need? But like Genesis chapter 12, if you remember his first test, it follows the same sort of progression. This is a different sort of expectancy maybe than Abraham had. Because Abraham is, in fact, he's, he's called again to go. He says, I want you to go. I want you to believe this place of familiarity, this place of comfort, this place of safety. I want you to go. And I want you to go to a place that I'll show you later. You don't know the end. You don't know the result. You don't know what's going to happen. I want you to trust in me. Then here, instead of in Ur, when he was called up to offer up a city and a status and a family and a culture to go to a place that God would show him, now here it's even a greater thing that he's called to offer up. He says, I want you to offer up your son. Your son, the one whom you've waited for. The miracle baby from a barren womb from your wife, Sarah. Yeah, that son. And just to make it abundantly clear, I want you to take your son, your only son. It's almost like he's kind of irritating the wound a little bit, inflicted by the banishment that he had to send his other son, Ishmael, away. Yeah, your only son. The only son that you have left. The one son that you put all your hopes and your dreams in. The one that you've waited a hundred years for. The one who's going to carry on the family name. The one who's going to take over the family business. That only son. I want you to take your son, your only son. Now he says, your son, Isaac. Yeah, the one that I've named. The one whose name means laughter. The one who's brought laughter to your soul. 
Time and time again, the one that you know deeply and passionately and personally, the one you know by name, Isaac. Make it even more abundantly clear, the one son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. The one you've hugged and kissed a thousand times. The one you've delighted in as much as any father could. The one that you love more than life itself. That son. Now this might feel like God is kind of mocking Abraham. I don't think that's the purpose here. I think God is wanting Abraham to be reassured that he knows what this test is. How hard it is. And can you feel the weight of this test? I remember last week when Pastor Paul was talking about Sophie's choice. Remember Sophie? She was asked by the Nazis that she must decide the future of her two children, one that she would have to send to the gas chamber and the other that she would be able to set free. And she had to make that impossible choice. Well, it's almost like this is an addendum. It's like a part two of that movie where... They come back around again and they say, no, now I want you to offer up your other child as well. I mean, this is, this is an impossible test. And I just want to tell you, Four Oaks, I mean, I, I know as I say this, that many of you have experienced similar tests in your life. I mean, things that you would never in your worst nightmares come up with. Things that you just can't prepare for. When God calls you and you say, hey, here am I. And then God tells you to go to the hardest place that you couldn't even imagine. I'm sure you can identify with Abraham. But as hard as it was to be deprived of his own son, there was something even deeper that was going on in Abraham's soul. John Calvin puts it like this. The great source of grief to him was not his own bereavement, not that he was commanded to slay his only heir, the hope of future memorial and of name, the glory and support of his family, but that in the person of his son, the whole salvation of the world seemed to be extinguished and perished. Abraham loved his son, not only as nature dictates and his parents commonly do who take delight in their children, but as beholding the paternal love of God in him. Isaac was the mirror of eternal life and the pledge of all good things. So for Abraham, Isaac wasn't just his son. He was the son of promise. He was the son who would bring about the blessings of God, not just to Abraham, not just to his family, but to the whole world. I mean, this was the death of more than just a son. This, was, this seemed to be death of life itself for all future generations. Gerhard von Rod puts it this way. He says, only one, or excuse me, one can only answer all plaintive scruples about this narrative by saying that it concerns something more frightful than child sacrifice. It has to do with a road into God-forsakenness a road on which Abraham does not know that God is only testing him. We have to remember, as we're reading this, we, he does not know the end of the story. All he knows is that God has asked him to offer up his son as a sacrifice. So how does Abraham respond? How would you respond? Verse 3. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, Soren Kierkegaard and others suggest that Abraham was so ready to do the will of God that he set his alarm clock and rose up early in the morning. It's possible. But I wonder if the reason that Abraham got up so early is because he never went to sleep. He was just tossed and turned on his bed. He's wondering how the faithful God who had rescued him time and time again could now ask this of him. I mean, wasn't it against God's law to murder a human being, particularly the slaughter of children? I mean, Abraham is just beside himself trying to reconcile these things in his mind. How, how, how is this possible, God? What are you asking of me? I wonder if he ever told Sarah before he left what he was asked to do or if he kept it to himself because it was just too painful to talk about. When Abraham does get up early in the morning, though, he immediately gets to work. Now, he had servants who could have easily cut the wood and saddled up the donkey. But I wonder if maybe he did the work because it was a a means of putting his mind at rest. Martin Luther said the, the only cure, humanly speaking, against the onslaught of debilitating depression apart from prayer and meditation on God's word was to busy his hands with manual labor. He just had to do something. But as he gets out his axe, with every swing of the axe, I mean, I'm sure every emotion just intensified. So painful, trying to reconcile all this in his mind and heart. Charles Spurgeon says this, he was a sheik and a mighty man in his camp, but he became a wood splitter. With splitting heart, he cleaves the wood, wood for the burning of his heir, wood for the sacrifice of his own dear child. Finally, after all the wood is cut, he puts the, the blankets on the donkey, he, he loads up the wood, and then he starts off with his teenage son, Isaac, and two young servants on that three-day journey. Well, Isaac probably didn't question the purpose of this trip. I mean, he probably offered sacrifices with his dad before. The heart of the dad just trembled inside. I mean, for three days and at least two nights, as they walked 42 miles to the north to a place called Moriah, Abraham's having to contemplate the killing of his own son. Three days, Abraham has to try to reconcile God's command with God's character and his promises. I mean, this is indeed the greatest test of faith to trust in God when you don't understand at all. And yet, Abraham rose up. And he went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
Moses has in, in mind here when he lifts up his physical eyes that there's this desire for us and for Abraham to lift up his spiritual eyes too. Remember back last week when we looked at Hagar, she lifted up her eyes and she sees the well in the middle of the desert. Here, Abraham lifts up his eyes. He sees the mountain. And then with spiritual eyes, he fights to see what he can't see. And what does he say? He says to the the servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there. I and the boy will worship. And I and the boy will come again to you. Now, there could have been maybe Abraham was hiding something from the servants and hiding something from his son Isaac. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this passage of scripture. Chapter 11. The, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We see what we can't see. That's faith. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham trusted and hoped in the God of promise. He trusted in the hope of of God's power and of eternal life that he could even raise his son from the dead. That's why he could say, we'll come back. And so with eyes of faith, verse 6 says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. With every step that Abraham took, I mean, that sacrificial knife just sort of slapped against his thigh. With every crunching of a rock beneath his feet, his mind is racing to only what was about to take place, a short walk ahead. He probably stole glances at his son, his only son, the son whom he loved. Just one more time, just one more time. I'll just look at you again. And then came those words, that searching question that he had dreaded to hear. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I wonder if Abraham's mouth opened, but he couldn't get any words out. It hung right there in the center of his throat. He just couldn't get them out. And probably finally with a a raspy sort of voice, he responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. I wonder if in that sentence, Abraham was saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, which is you, my son. But Abraham, when he speaks, he reveals what's pushing him forward. It's not, I will do it. It's God will do it. It's not, I can't provide. It's God will provide The word for provide in the Hebrew comes from the same root word that means to see. 
In essence, Abraham says, you can't see the lamb. I can't see the lamb. But God sees the lamb. He will provide. See, faith is the gap between what is and what is promised. And we've got to leave it up to God to bridge that gap in his timing and in his way. With open hands, with open hearts, Abraham holds up everything to God and says, all that I have is yours, God, even my only son. I'm giving it all to you. I'm trusting in you. John Calvin puts it this way. This example is for our imitation. In such straits, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. We pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. Where are you living in that gap between what is and what is promised to be? Where are you hoping against all hope that God will come through for you? Where are you trusting in God's providence? Please, God, please provide. I can't see, but you can. God, you promised never to leave me or forsake me, but I don't feel it right now. I feel all alone. God, you promised to provide for all of my needs, but all of my needs don't feel like they're being met. God, you promised peace that surpasses all understanding, but my heart is churning within me with angst and fear. God, you promised to grant children the desires of their hearts, but my prayers are going unanswered. God, you promised all things to work together for our good but this does not feel good. You guys been in that spot? Trying to reconcile God's promises with your present circumstances? How are you going to work this out, God? How are you going to come through? How are you going to bridge that gap that I can't see? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God is testing Abraham to see if he will trust in God. God. The Apostle Paul, much later, prays, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we say, Yes, amen. But then he adds immediately after that, And the fellowship of his sufferings. We can't experience God's resurrection power until we experience death. Death of what we just can't reconcile in our hearts and our minds. Death to dreams, death to hopes, death to all sorts of things that we experience in this life where we feel truly broken. And God says, that is the place where I will meet you. Following Jesus in the midst of suffering is a lonely, hard place. This is where our faith grows. This is where we've seen Abraham's faith grows. The gap between what is and what is promised to be, we begin to see Abraham's faith filling up that gap even more and more and more. To the point where we get to verse 9. As they both go up together, they come to the place of which God had told him. And there Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound his 
son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Not only was Abraham's faith being tested, but Isaac's was too. Isaac was a teenage boy. He was strong enough. He was fast enough to run away from his old dad. But Isaac chose not to. He chose to trust in the God of promise as well. He voluntarily surrendered himself, trusting in the command of God. He got up on top of the altar and said, Not my will, but yours be done, God. Now being bound, probably to keep him from running away at the last second. Verse 10 says, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, can you imagine the, the, the fear, the, the terror, the, the shaking? I can't, even, I can't even begin to comprehend what that must have been like. God has tested Abraham's faith to the fullest. But that's, as we know, not where the story ends. Movement number two, God provides. The God who tests is also the God who provides. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He's probably like, I'm dropping the knife. What do you want? He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. God is the God who provides. And what I love about this is the first thing he provides for Abraham is a word of affirmation. Pay attention here. Now I know. Did God not know what Abraham was going to do? Is he, is he not an all-knowing God? No, God knew exactly what Abraham was going to do. God wasn't wondering, fretting about how things were going to go down. He says, now I know, not for God's benefit, but for Abraham's benefit. So that Abraham would know in depth of his soul, I do fear God. God, you really did unite my heart to fear your name. What a gift for Abraham. He received affirmation of his character, of his faith from the living God. And this is what we need, right? In a time of testing, we need this from the Lord as well, an affirmation from him. We need for God to tell us, I am proud of you. And that's why he sent his very spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are my son, you are my daughter. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I am proud of you. I'm watching over you. I am testing your faith, and then I will reward you for your faith. And one day, before a great cloud of witnesses, I will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Words of affirmation that we so desperately need in times of testing. God gives it to Abraham and God gives it to us. And what does Abraham do in this time of provision? He responds in praise. Verses 13 and 14. Abraham lifted up his eyes. There it is again. Eyes of faith. Lifts up his eyes and looked. Verse 13. 
And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provides a substitute, a substitute for his son Isaac. And then Abraham responds, calling on the name of the Lord. He calls the name of that place. The Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh, my provider. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You see, testing leads to trust and provision leads to praise. When God comes through for us, we want to be quick to give him praise and thankfulness for his provision the way that Abraham did When God provides a substitute, when he bridges that gap, when we don't see what's going to happen, and then he comes through for us again, and we say, yes, God, thank you, I praise you. You are my provider. So God provides affirmation, God provides a substitute, but the most important thing that I want us to see in this passage, and this is not something Abraham sees, but because we are looking back on this story, God also provides for us a picture of, of the gospel, doesn't he? There's a deeper, fuller provision that God gives to us in this story. He provides a promise of blessing that will one day come through his own son, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, movement number three, God fulfills. God fulfills the promise made to Abraham. Verse 15, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. God restates one more time his promise to Abraham. You're going to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. They're going to all receive great blessings that will come through your offspring. All of the enemies will be defeated through this offspring. But this time he says, by myself I have sworn. In other words, I'm swearing on my own life. It's as good as done. I will do it. I am faithful. I will always come through for my people. I will always fulfill my promises. Now, Abraham didn't understand completely what this meant, but we do. We see the gospel fully displayed in this passage of Scripture. We see the eternal love of the Heavenly Father who willingly gives up his one and only son, the one whom he loves from the very beginning of time. But this time, there's no one to shout stop. The heavenly father must put his only begotten son to death. We also see the story of the son the beloved son of God in this passage, don't we? The word son is mentioned 13 times to make it abundantly clear that we're to look for Jesus in this passage. Jesus was God's son, God's only son, the one whom he loved, the one whom God sacrificed. 
Jesus was the young man climbing up the hill. Jesus is the one who carried the wood on his back upon which he would die. Jesus is the ultimate man of faith who obeyed completely and trusted his father no matter what. Jesus was the ram caught in the thicket. Jesus was the one sacrificed as a substitute for another. And Jesus may very well have been the angel of the Lord. This is what's known as a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament, an appearance of God in human form to speak as God. It doesn't appear just to be an angel. It appears to be Jesus himself. Can you imagine this? Jesus speaking to Abraham as the angel of the Lord, by myself I have sworn. I am the ram. I am the faithful. I am the tested. I am the beloved. I am the crucified lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One last thing that we see in this passage. This takes place on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is in the south part of Palestine. And later its name is changed to Jerusalem or Mount Zion. It's the historic place where Abraham not only offers up his son, but where the temple was built and later where the crucifixion of Jesus Christ took place. So what's most important to take away from this story is not what can you give up for God, It's behold the God who gave everything up for you. I want you to see that when God tests us, it comes through the lens of his love for us. When God provides for us, it comes through the lens of his love for us. When God fulfills all the promises through Jesus Christ and the slaying of his own son, it comes through the love of God. That's the takeaway. It's not, what can I do for you, God? It's, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that you've given up everything for me. R.C. Sproul says this, God brought the knife into the heart of his only begotten son, fulfilling in time and in space the promise that was dramatized and symbolized By Abraham's child of promise, God said, Abraham, I will provide the sacrifice. I will provide the lamb. See, God's not going to ask for Abraham to murder his son. It's not necessary. The only thing that's necessary is that I must slay my son. So when we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table this morning, we are called to behold Jesus. We're called to behold the Father who gave up his Son. We're called to behold the Spirit who breathes life and love into our hearts as we see the gospel displayed in this passage of Scripture. 
But not only that, you know, if you are going through a time of testing right now, or you will go through a time of testing, we're not only to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but we also are to behold the high priest, Jesus Christ, who, who, is, who is sympathizing with all of our weaknesses, who is tempted in every way and yet did not sin, so that he knows how to pray for us. He knows how to come alongside of us. He knows how to say, hey, I know your pain. I know your sorrow to the furthest extreme, and I can identify with you. I want to come close to you. I'm not a distant God. I am a, a near God. I'm near to the brokenhearted. I save the crushed in spirit. Behold me, and yet also remember. Remember that even though you have to go through great suffering in this life, There's one test that you don't have to pass. There's one test that you don't have to endure. The anger of my Father poured out upon your sin. I took that for you. I passed the test so that you could enter into the joy of me, both now and forever. For Oaks, the love of God is a marvelous, beautiful, glorious thing. Behold him, trust in him, wait for him to provide for you, and look to him, the fulfillment of all of your promises, and the one who guarantees that all those promises of God are yea and amen through Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray.